Tap In Time, a Chapman Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's stick talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. Hello and welcome to Tap In Time, episode number six. This is Victor, and I'm by myself for just a moment to open the show this time. So not too long ago, Claire, Rodrigo, and I were able to hang out with Jim Meyer for a little while, marking Tap In Time's first featured guest appearance. It was really a great chat, and we hope you enjoyed as much as we did. So here we go. Good morning, everyone. Victor here, along with Claire and Rodrigo. Hello. Hello. And today we're joined by Jim Meyer, who's coming to us from beautiful British Columbia up in Canada. So uh, welcome, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Well, you know, thanks for coming on. Yeah. So for those who might not be familiar with Jim, he's had a pretty big influence on the stick community. He's a wonderful player, wonderful teacher and human being, and he runs what is, as far as we're aware, the longest running stick event on the planet up there in British Columbia. And he's got albums, he's spent a lot of time busking, and he's one of those players that drives some of us to want to shave our heads to, you know, maybe improve our playing. (laughs) That's what I did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about it. So when we started talking about how the time was right to start bringing interviews to the Tap in Time podcast. I mentioned that maybe, just maybe, if I paid him back all that money I owed him, I might be able to get Jim to come on. So before I knew it, everybody was speaking up and saying they wanted in on this interview, or maybe they meant they wanted in on getting money. I don't know. Um, Because we've all gotten to know Jim over the years in one way or another. And frankly, if our remote recording technology could handle recording five tracks, Gene would be here also. So uh, before we put Jim under the spotlight, I thought maybe Claire and Rodrigo might take a moment just to say how you guys met Jim. So Claire, how did you meet Jim? Go figure at a Vancouver stick seminar. Um, <laughs> my first my first stick seminar was in 2013, and that was about a year into my own playing. Uh, and that was the first stick seminar I went to. So headed out to, uh, that was on Granville Island. Um, really fun, cool bunch of people. We had beautiful weather. It was just, it was just a blast. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting how I think the folks that put stick camps and stick seminars together, just, they have a certain really outgoing, friendly personality. I think it's part of what needs to happen to put those together and, and keep them going. So that, that was really a blast. And I had a great time. Uh, since then, I've been to another uh, Vancouver Stick Seminar a couple years ago. I think that was 2018. 2018. Yeah, uh, that was on Gabriola Island. Yeah. Man, that was just a vacation. It was just so gorgeous out there, and I just I just wanted to stay out there forever, honestly. Uh, we saw orcas at the end. It was just crazy. Just crazy beautiful. Oh, yeah. I've seen Jim at other seminars, uh, Interlochen, Stick Camp, probably some others, and I've seen him a bunch out at NAM, the NAM show in January. Um, so it's just been cool to interact with him. I'm a fan of his music as well. So he's just a cool guy. So. Mm, yeah. So everybody's getting paid. <laughs> Everybody owes you money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So Rodrigo, how did you meet Jim? Well, I met the stick master of the world. And uh, <laughs> as we all like to call him. Uh, I met him at my first seminar 
in Mallorca in 2015. So uh, I had just been playing for a couple of months and I was lucky enough to have a stick camp close enough. Uh, I live in Portugal, so this was in, in Spain, in Barcelona, close enough to Barcelona in Mallorca. So it was really close and I went there and there was a bunch of guys and there was this big, bold guy that happened to be the first person I saw and he was kind enough to to offer to be the first one to offer me a beer after my first crash and burn playing the stick life. So there was this big guy saying, I got you beer, man. So it all make it made it feel quite almost human again. So uh, after that, I went last year to Jimmy and Vitamin to, to Gabriola Island. So I was there and uh, it was um, the most wonderful experience to, to be there and to be around, uh, well, with you also, Vic, and um, to be around that energy, particular energy in that place, of, in that part of the world was was really special. Plus, Jim's, uh, what's it called, CD is on my car ever since I got him uh, in 2015. So it's it's like a heavy rotation because I really like the way he plays. I like his songs. I like the, the way it sounds. So it's, it's one of my favorite players. So there's a whole bunch of things why I really wanted to be here. Plus, he's a very funny cat. So... <laughs> I do have to say, though, for anybody that's seen any of Rodrigo's videos, <laughs> Crash and Burn is not what Rodrigo did on Mallorca. <laughs> I might call it a landing without an engine or something, but but I've crashed and burned. <laughs> and trust me, uh, Rodrigo did pretty well. We were all kind of blown away because in Mallorca, you had owned an instrument for, I'm going to say, four months or something like that. Yeah, something that like that. So, yeah, we were all pretty impressed with the way Rodrigo crashed and burned, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, as for myself, you know, I've mentioned this in other podcast episodes, but, uh, you know, common theme, I met Jim at a seminar, happened to be the Vancouver seminar, and I've been back every year for, I don't know, I guess five years now. What was your first year? Was it the Deer Lake one? No, it was before that. Uh, it, it was, was uh, the, the rental house. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the Deer Lake was a rental house also, I think. But, yeah, true uh, enough. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think I've been to four of them now, two on Gabriola and then two on the mainland. And I got to say, Jim, you never bought me a beer when I crashed and burned. <laughs> plenty of opportunities. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and uh, so actually, Jim has been to every seminar I've been to because when I went to Interlochen, Jim was there also. So anyway. Why don't we go ahead and get started with putting Jim under the spotlight? So, can you maybe start out by telling us about your musical background and maybe how to stick folded into that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's I've, I've listened to all your other episodes, and I think this is a great thing to do for stick. So folded. you're the one that listened to the yeah yeah. I'm the one that got you in double digits, <laughs> <laughs> and that's because you listened to him twelve times. <laughs> That's right. I try to log on to a different international server each time. So, <laughs> yeah, so I think these are really great. Uh, my background, I started as a kid, I started with uh, classical piano lessons. So I, I never became much of a pianist, but that's how I learned music. And even now, if, if somebody throws out a weird name of a chord, I picture a piano keyboard. That's just, I think, the first thing you learn is what sticks with you. But um, in high school, I got a real interest in the electric bass and started playing bass in uh, bands that were sort of pop rock cover tunes, maybe leaning a little bit toward the, the 70s prog that I was a big fan of. So as a bass player, uh, Chris Squire, oh, yeah, probably uh, Eddie Lee were huge influences on me. Um, so then it all became about bass. 
But uh, in university and uh, high school and university, I, I played bass in a variety of bands. Uh, the the biggest of which uh, I, had, I ended up playing in an eight piece that had a three piece horn section. And that for a guy who just listened to, you know, 70s prog, that really opened me up musically to playing with other instruments. I really enjoy having the horn section there. Uh, after that kind of now, this is getting into the mid late 80s. I set up a little MIDI studio at home. So anybody that remembers the Mac SE, <laughs> I had a Mac SE with no hard drive, two floppy disks, uh, operating system on one floppy and all the music on another. So I did, I spent a bit of time doing um, soundtracks for what we say industrial and educational videos. So sort of, um, well, if you ever worked at the British Columbia Liquor Board, you would have heard my music while you watched the orientation <laughs> inventory system. <laughs> and uh, a number of educational videos in that. So um, That's quite a claim to fame. That was, yeah. I, I did, uh, at the University of British Columbia here, I spent a few years doing soundtracks for their media department. And uh, the first one I ever did, this is typical, was uh, sampling and recognition of harmful phytoplankton. So that's where, you know, a career in music. Oh, wow. Get you. Yeah. I'm sure you've all seen that. that was riveting. Yeah. <laughs> Big into the phytoplankton. Yeah. So the MIDI stuff sort of got me back to keyboard, and I realized uh, what I missed as a bass player was, you know, I didn't think of it at the time, but I think of it now as being able to play solo. There's not a lot of bass player soloists around. I can think of a couple, but that's a tough gig for sure. So when I stumbled onto the stick... It just seemed to make a lot of sense for me, partly because you know, everyone knows Tony Levin being the, the ultimate bass player was one of the first people to go to the stick. So as a bass player, that kind of seemed to make sense. For me, though, the first image of a stick I saw was a Kitty Hawk album. So I'm going to say that was 79. Oh, yeah. I just discovered them about a year ago, finally. Oh, yeah. They're pretty awesome. Yeah, a roommate of mine in university was a big jazz fan, and I don't even know how he heard of him because I never heard of him, but he had an album, and there was a stick, uh, you know, the band was on, I think, the back cover. So that was the first image of a Chapman stick that I saw. So that's Paul Edwards, I guess. So that kind of got me going, and it was only a couple of years after that that I saw King Crimson live a couple of times when Tony first joined in the early 80s. And so then I saw from a distance, I saw somebody play a Chapman stick, and then very shortly after that, here in Vancouver, I, met, I was working in a recording studio and met a band, Excited First Daughter, that has a stick player who's now over on Vancouver Island, but used to live here in Vancouver, uh, David Horsley. And that was a Chapman stick guitar and drums, uh, definitely a prog-leaning band. And what was great for me with that, this is like a very late 80s, early 90s, I got to watch David perform a number of times, and I would go to their rehearsals, and we even video recorded a couple of their performances and that was great because then I got to see the same players play the same tunes multiple times and I really do think that's when the instrument kind of made sense. I could see, oh, that's what he's doing. And then it was shortly after that that um, Nathan Aswell here in Vancouver started doing uh, a couple of seminars. Now this is mid-90s, I think 96 and 97. And that was a continuation of uh, seeing Excited First Daughter. Now I got to see Greg Howard, Teed Rockwell and a young fellow down in California, Don, what is his name? Don Schiff or something like that. <laughs> and believe me, spending a weekend, I mean, it, the, the six seminars are awesome, but if you want to crank it up a notch, make sure Don is there because he is the funnest guy. Yeah, I can hear Claire laughing. He's the funnest guy to hang out with. And Don, everybody's got stories. Don's stories are amazing. Oh, he can tell them all day. Oh, yeah. And so it was really great to see Don and Greg, especially 
perform like you know now we're in a small club and i'm in the front row so i can really see what they're doing and and um that really got me into seminars because i realized right away there's so much you can get out of a seminar if you're a raw beginner you can get a few clues of what you can be doing next and maybe some pointers from the pros and if you're fairly experienced you can see eight or ten different styles of playing in a weekend and maybe you know steal a little bit from here and there it's it's phenomenal that Emmett creates this one instrument but as we all know you give it to 10 different musicians and you hear 10 completely different things so that that's really what got me going and then i started going to seminars and i realized it would be cheaper for me to to do a seminar here in town <laughs> so honestly that's how it started i remember chatting with greg one day and i think greg said you should just do one here like you should do one. So that, that was the beginning of it. And that was, uh, well, if we manage to pull it off this year, this will be the 19th Vancouver Sticks Seminar. Man, that's just phenomenal. 19 years. I'd have pulled my hair out by now. Well, it only takes 18 years to do 19 seminars. <laughs> <laughs> this is math that I've done several times. <laughs> See, I'd, I'd have to use fingers to figure that one out. <laughs> Given the background you've just described, you know, you got your piano, you got your bass, you got Kitty Hawk. How has that impacted the way you approach the instrument? You know, everyone's got their way of approaching the instrument, whether it's playing or uh, composing. And, you know, how has that impacted you? Well, I have to say, maybe other people are feeling this way too, but you don't tend to think about it so much forward looking. But, but since you asked me that, I started looking back. And as I look back, it all makes perfect sense how I ended up with the stick. But certainly 20 years ago, I would have never guessed that. But um, for me, basically, it, when I, as soon as I got the instrument, I started composing. And I've talked to other stick players. This isn't everybody, but I, I know a few other stick players. Matt Tate comes to mind that just started writing music immediately as a way to become comfortable with the instrument. And that was definitely it for me. And as a bass player, and you can, those of you watching can see the Rickenbacker on the wall back there. I totally came hey, to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a Rickenbacker on the wall. <laughs> yeah. That's a 1978 4001, <laughs> by the way. Um, I, I started approaching the instrument as a bass player and was trying to come up with kind of fun bass lines and a little bit of two hands on the bass side, kind of staying away from the, the other half of the instrument. And now, uh, now that I think about it, that must have been from seeing Tony Levin play. <laughs> like, oh, it's all the fun stuff is on the bass side, you know. Um, but then kind of started exploring it a little bit. And I have to say, I spent literally years, I wouldn't say I was devoted to a lot of time every day or anything, but I was putting a little bit of time in and just not really progressing. And I think for me, the, the first couple of seminars I went to really helped in 
what I should be practicing and, and seeing other people play kind of gave me much a better idea of the physicality of how to actually approach the instrument. Um, and then I remember it was at least a couple of years and I was, I had my headphones on. I used to practice a lot with a little headphone amp on my belt and just headphones. And, and I, it just struck me, this is a piano. And it sounds kind of crazy now because I'm sure a lot of people would have done that way earlier than me. But in that instant, I became a better player because I was sort of fighting. For me personally, I feel very comfortable with a bass guitar in my hands. I am not and never will be a guitar player. So the, the right-hand side of the instrument was never home base for me. And I was just wrestling with, okay, my left hand knows how to be a bass player. I'm going to teach my right hand to be a guitar player. For some people, I think that'll work just fine. For me, that really was not the path to success. And when I thought in my head, this is more of a piano, again, not being a great piano player, but I had experience with that. And immediately my two hands understood how to work together. So I think all those days practicing piano really helped out a lot. And if you're familiar with my music, you know, there's, you can tell I'm a bass player, I think, because the, in certain tunes, the bass player really comes out. And that's really, I think for the most part, I, I'm thinking like a piano player. But approaches to the instrument, I want to cut that out into three, three ways that I usually, if I'm trying to come up with a tune or even just learning a, a cover tune or something. The first method is what I call piano the piano approach to the stick. And you can argue with the terminology, and maybe there's a better way to say it. But for me, that's um, some sort of chord arpeggio in the left hand, and then either a melody or a chord in the right hand. So it's, it's like some of the beginner piano stuff I would do was a chord arpeggio with the left hand, something very simple, and then a melody or chord in the right hand. So that's kind of why I use that piano. But that's certainly one legitimate approach to the instrument. The second one for me, I call rock band. And uh, Downshift 405, if anybody knows my stuff, that's an example. The left hand is playing a bass line. If I had a bass guitar in my hand, I'd probably be playing the same thing. So that's bass line. And then the right hand, I, I, I don't think of myself as like an improviser or a soloist necessarily. So in that rock band approach, I think I'm the rhythm section. So my left hand is the bass player and my right hand is the rhythm guitar player. And you know, after the second verse, I'm probably going to play a solo. But for the most part, that's the method, bass with the left hand and kind of rhythm guitar with the right hand. And then the third one I call the stick approach. And I think this is the one that makes the most sense eventually. It's one instrument. You can divide pickups and have these strings and that strings, but it's one piece of wood with 10 or 12 strings on it. So approach it as one instrument. Uh, and uh, there is a piano aspect of this too. If you're playing piano and you find that your hands are crossing over, I think that's the same thing. It means there's a note that you have to play. And if you don't play it with your right hand, that's okay. Just play it with your left hand. Just play that note. And I think of that, uh, another way to say this is flip the mono switch. Because if you flip the mono switch for my active two pickups, that means everything's going out the bass side. That means if I have one pedal board, all the effects are the same on both sides of the instrument. And Victor, this is a little bit for you. Uh, we've both managed to get through Glenn Poorman's 1,000 words. To me, that's an excellent example of one of these kind of songs because the two hands are working together to play one thing. And the way that Glenn, even Glenn's instructions on the music that he was kind enough to put up on his website, it's pretty clear that both sides of the stick are going into a delay pedal so that you don't have to worry about trying to get the right hand and the left hand delay right. 
So I really like that too. On um, I think looking back is one of my tunes. It's the same idea, which was actually written for piano and then transcribed to stick. So that's a tune where the effects on both sides of the instrument, I wouldn't say are exactly the same, but they're really close so that it sounds like one great big instrument. So that's piano, arpeggios in one hand, mill in the other, rock band, bass player, and guitar player, or the stick approach where you're just, it's one big thing, and I'll use both hands to play it. Hmm. Just trying to figure something out. That kind of depends on the repertoire, right? So I would say that for me personally, that's informed by what tune you're trying to play. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I know I'm attempting to play a couple of classical things, but I know you guys are the classical musicians. What's your thoughts on that? Are you thinking in a little bit of a piano frame of mind when you're playing Bach? Definitely. It's, I wouldn't say as a piano, but I tend to stay away with, with descriptions of instruments. So I don't like to, to think of it anymore as a, the bass part or the guitar part or the piano. It's just the stick thing, but it's completely one instrument, one approach of two hands playing the, the same 10 or 12 strings. So it's, for me personally, it's much more productive this way. You said something that's particularly helpful, which is if you can't play a note with the right hand, play with the left, it doesn't really matter. It's like play with the finger that you have more close by. So it doesn't matter which hand I, I, it's using. So I would tend to think like that also. I don't do that so much, but just the way you said it, it just reminded me of watching Emmett play because Emmett will play a chord with the left hand on the bass side or a little arpeggio, and then he'll reach with his left pinky and play something over on the melody side. And it's like, hey, if that's the finger that can reach it, go for it. Yeah, I can see Victor's trying to sort that out. That trust me, that is not easy to do. <laughs> you know, for those that aren't able to see the video, which is anyone listening to this podcast, yeah, um, you, know, we're, you know, Jim was demonstrating it on the video feed, and I'm sitting there trying to bend my pinky on an imaginary stick, and uh, you know, I'm not sure if Claire and Rodrigo are doing that. I can't see their hands, but they're looking down. I've already, I've already that that particular thing that Emmett does. Uh, and I've seen guys do it, like Andy Salvanos does that also. Bob Culbertson sometimes oh, does it also. They're all guys with big hands, so big <laughs> fingers that can... I couldn't get my little finger to go to the melody side if I'm doing something else. So I've <laughs> given up on that. But <laughs> Your little finger, your left little finger has to cross over all of the melody strings yeah, exactly. to get to its position. It's crazy. <laughs> Just hit one on the way. <laughs> <laughs> you just trip over it maybe along the way. <laughs> oh. So it's interesting to hear that when you said earlier that, you know, you kind of approached it for a while as a bass player and and that's kind of how you, you know, when you have the rock band approach. I'm, I think of uh, your song Ignition that, you know, you've got this really cool, funky bass line going on and uh, through, you know, probably half the song, you know, you're also doing uh, other stuff, but that, that, that little bass funky groove. So that's, uh, that's Don Schiff, the bass player from the eighties, eh? <laughs> A little bit, except uh, in Ignition, that little groove is root five octave. I think Don would have maybe elaborated a little more. <laughs> <laughs> But hopefully the driving aspect of it, yeah. I think definitely to watch him play the stick from a bass player's perspective because... Well, you're not so bad. But there's a few stick players that just rock the bass side so hard. I remember at the seminar, I think it was last year, you were doing some warm-ups and you were trying to figure out if you were going to play Ignition or not. And so you were playing it and I'm sitting at the table with Jafflet 
And Jafflet and I are talking and he stops talking. He looks over at you and he goes, oh, what is that? What is that? Oh, oh, well, I got to get a drum kit. I want to play along with that. And you're playing Ignition, you know, so it was it was kind of funny to see Jafflet's head snap over and start, you know, start complaining that there wasn't a drum kit for him to jump on because he wanted to play along with that. It was kind of. Well, but if you remember when um, when Alan's band showed up to play Saturday night, the Radnecks. Jafflet jumped on their drum kit and we played Ignition. And I thought that was pretty cool that a stick player just jumps behind a drum kit and plays a tune that he's never played before. <laughs> <laughs> so that worked out. Uh, oh, that must have been when I was out of the room because I don't remember that happening. Oh, man, I missed yeah, it. Yeah, that was, that was really fun. I have, fortunately, I have photographic evidence of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I wanted to mention that just because um, Rodrigo had mentioned the crash and burn thing. All of us have done that. So if and when you crash and burn, don't feel bad about it. It's just a step along the way. But um, that's when your still photography comes in handy because <laughs> you have a still photograph of you destroying a song. No one can tell that from a still photo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you can look like you're really like shredding in yeah, that way. The facial expression is crucial. Yeah. <laughs> The look of panic in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim, you you uh, you do a lot of busking, and I understand that's a lot of your maybe part of your practice um, method. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on that? I I should point out one of the things it, when I went to that first stick seminar that I went to, our opportunity to play in public, and my first ever opportunity to play stick in public. Uh, was actually during one of your busking slots. And it was really, I mean, actually the weather wasn't that nice that, that day. That day it was, was cold. Not, yeah. But it was just such a chill environment, at least for those of us who don't do that regularly. But can you just tell us a bit about your busking and how all that ties into your playing and your evolution as a player? Sure. The, um, the place where I busk most of the time is Granville Island, which is a pretty big touristy area here in town. And um, I've been going there forever. And there's always there's been live music there as at least from the 80s onward. So it's a place where people know there's it's organized. There's a a society that interacts with the buskers and gets our schedules going and all that. So it's a legitimate thing. People know about it. People from all over the world walk through the place. Uh, the, the island itself has something like I think it's 32 art galleries, which are very small, single artisan. There's a a glass blower. There's a number of um, visual artist there's a sculptor uh there's a fellow that made a my stick sculpture for a big birthday i had recently out of metal that's Ooh, beautiful awesome yeah so it's a very artsy place the largest public market in town is there there's a number of restaurants there's nightclubs so it's it's a really great place to hang out if you're visiting vancouver so i've always thought it would be a great place to play and i never thought it made sense for me personally to busk until i had a cd to sell so my first CD was finished in December of 2009, and I started busking in January of 2010. And uh, January in Vancouver, as you might guess, is not quite so pleasant. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily <laughs> ice cold, but it rains all winter. So there's times where that's a real challenge in the in the off season. But for those that are keeping score, okay, one month after January 2010 was the Vancouver Winter Olympics. 
So in February of 2010 on Vancouver Island, I sold CDs to five continents. And that was a really great kickstart <laughs> to the whole busking thing. But uh, for me, busking, I do want to take a little bit of issue. I don't feel super strong about this, but for buskers, uh, there's, you know, there's famous stories about the classically trained violin player that played in the subway in New York and nobody paid any attention to him and, and all that kind of stuff. But I know a lot of people say, when a musician's out busking, they're practicing. And I'm sure that that's true for some people, <laughs> but not me and not the people that I know that, that busk on Granville Island because um, that's my performance. And I don't, I don't want to have a tune that I kind of half know, oh, that'd be a great place to kind of see if I can get through it. Yeah, I never do that. I, that's, uh, you know, for 10 years now, the biggest chunk of money that I make is selling CDs. So if I'm not kind of as on as I can be, then I'm sort of wasting my time there. I know that there's other people that, oh, I got a tour coming up. I should go busk for a while so I can polish things up. And I, I don't know that I even have a problem with that, really. But that's just not the approach that I have. So it's, it's serious. You know, from the, from the three and a half minutes it takes me to set up, then it's like, all right, we're, we're doing this. And I've thought about what I want to play. There's sometimes where I'll get the mood of what's going on and maybe change my set. I don't have a problem with that, but, but I've got my tunes ready to go and I'm not out there practicing at all. And by the, the, the other thing is it's really fun. I mean, it's a great place to be, you know, there's tension with every job, I suppose, but there's an enormous number of beautiful children on Granville Island. And if anything is bugging you, like, there's a giant delivery truck with one of those refrigerator units and it's decided to park right behind you while it unloads, you know? And it's like, oh, I've only got 45 <laughs> minutes here and that's going to be the whole time. And then some kid comes out and starts dancing to what you're doing. It just it just puts you in such a great mood. So it, it's a very happy place to be. And and I would say busking, uh, for me, I, I learned to play the instrument from going to seminars. Uh, that was really crucial. And I've been all over the place, Mallorca and... Neuchatel and Karlsruhe, Germany, and you know, any place I can go to play. Busking for me was how to learn to perform. And uh, I hadn't really performed a ton on the stick, you know, parties and informal stuff like that. But, um, but I was kind of thrown in the deep end when I started busking. I just knew I have to do this. And you can try to get as ready for it as you want to, but there are so many things that happen once you start busking in a public space so I really learned to perform and not only perform, but I can now play under adverse circumstances. <laughs> and I'll list well, those, you know, a typical busking spot might involve, yeah, lots of trucks, uh, helicopters, float planes, uh, boats, because it's an island, you'll hear boat horns and all kinds of stuff. And, and maybe the biggest distraction is people. And this is one of my favorite stories. I have a good buddy that, that uh, a finger style solo acoustic guitar player named Les Finnegan. Everybody check out Les Finnegan. Um, he's been performing on Granville Island for much longer than I have. And a lot of people know him. He's really fantastic. And I'm playing a set and I'm in the middle of a song and somebody, you know, some visitors like to keep a respectful distance and some visitors don't know anything about that. And this person is like right in my face while I'm playing and they say, do you know where Les Finnegan's playing right now? <laughs> 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 so you, you really, through experience, you learn to deal with a lot of situations. 
And I have one actually that's worse than that. There was a fellow listening to me, and I, I, I don't understand this myself so much, but I've had a, a, a significant number of people say to me, oh, do you know Mark Knopfler? Because you remind me of Nar Mark Knopfler from the Dire Straits. And I will say I know the Dire Straits a bit. Mark Knopfler's solo stuff, I don't really know that well, so I'm not really sure. But this is just something that comes up frequently for some reason. So this guy was convinced that I sound just like Mark Knopfler, and he, he mentions that to me in the middle of my set. And then he goes and sits down and puts these headphones on, and I thought, oh, that's how much he likes Mark Knopfler. <laughs> so I'm done with my set, and the guy comes up to me with his earbuds, reached out to me and says, oh, pop these in and listen to this. This is Mark Knopfler. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know that this is the perfect time for me to be listening to someone else in your headphones. <laughs> so it's, you know, sometimes it's a delicate dance of like... You know, people, they, they want to say something to you and they want to be nice, but sometimes they don't realize maybe that that's not the best compliment. Oh, oh yeah, what you're doing is cool, but you know, I know a bunch of guys that are so much better than you. Here, listen to one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, busking. What else about busking? Do you busk like throughout the whole year or there's like a high season and a low season? It's uh, it's a 360. 63 day schedule down there. They're closed on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. Oh, that, that's not true. There's a few other days. That are, Mondays are closed in January for some reason. But uh, when I started busking, it was about 200 days a year. And there were times that um, that might be 100 days in a row covering the pleasant season. And then, um, you know, whenever it's nice or, you know, I've, I've busked in the snow down there. I think, uh, again, it doesn't get super cold here, but what is minus five in Fahrenheit is probably. Oh, yeah, that'd be about 20, what, 23, 22? Something oh. like that, yeah. So, so low 20s is probably oh, the cold. coldest. Yeah. That, and really, the deal is I, I wear the half gloves that kind of cover half your fingers. It's amazing how much that helps. But for me, in, yeah, in centigrade, when we get to like minus three or four, uh, I, the fingers just get a little stiff and I just can't play that well. So, so as long as it's above freezing, I'm your guy. <laughs> so I tried that once I, just because I wanted to do it. You know, it snowed. And so I pulled my amp outside. I even actually recorded it. <laughs> just at home? Were there a lot of uh, European visitors in your driveway? <laughs> uh, yeah, I found that my instrument wouldn't stay in tune. Oh, you know that it's it's interesting that you say that. There are times where I would, uh, our, our, we have one hour to set up, perform, and tear down, which generally gives me about forty-five to maybe fifty minutes to play. And there are times where I'll retune halfway through, but there's plenty of times where it's just you know if I tune if if the instrument is already the right temperature, and I tune up, it's yeah I think I'm pretty lucky in that way. It doesn't seem to be a problem. Hmm. Yeah, I did come in from a warm house outside onto the deck, and so yeah, it was it was just acclimating is what it was. So, oh, uh, so if it's okay, I do have a couple of busking stories I got to throw out because oh yeah, the one thing really fun about busking is you you meet people from everywhere, from all over the place. And um, I met a guy one day. I would say he was about, he was probably a little bit older than me, and he saw me playing, and he said, "Yeah, I recorded Emmett Chapman in a recording studio in New York City in 1976." And he started giving me details about it and how amazed he was because 1976, nobody knew what a stick was. So he was amazed to meet Emmett and watch him play and stuff. And the next time I, I saw Emmett, I said, yeah, I met this guy that said he recorded you. 
in New York. And that's as far as I got. And Nemeth says his name and he start, he's describing like what they played and what the recording he goes. Yeah, he was a really nice guy. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So then a little while later, I met a woman and she said she and her husband were the Chapman Stick distributors in Japan in the 1980s. And again, I asked them about oh. that. And he, oh, they were such nice people. And, you know, they were a married couple. And yeah, I think in the 80s, Emmett had a couple of deals like that where people were doing regional distributing. So that was pretty cool. And then one day, a guy comes up to me and he says, uh, oh, I knew Emmett Chapman when he was making those Chapman sticks in a basement in Winnipeg. And I'm like, okay, I knew Emmett and Yuta lived in Vancouver for a year and were married in Vancouver, for those that don't know. Uh, July 1956, I think that was. I had no idea that Emmett lived in Winnipeg. So I asked Emmett about that the next time I saw it, and Emmett has no idea that he lived in Winnipeg either. <laughs> <laughs> so ever since then, I've been wondering, okay, who was this guy thinking of? <laughs> like, is there somebody in a basement in Winnipeg that's making some sort of stringed instruments? Or... Not uh, maybe they're making sitars. <laughs> maybe that could be it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, and, I mean, really, that that speaks more to the community of the Chapman stick, I guess, than busking. Because when people identify you with the stick, it's amazing how oh, I knew this guy, or I saw this guy, or I met Emmett, or whatever. And it, it's it's a very I, I mentioned this to once Emmett shortly after I started busking that the Chapman stick is a conversation starter. It, it, a lot of the conversations start with, what is that? But many of them start with, oh, I, I saw this stick player. And yeah, for me, I saw a stick player in San Francisco. Oh, that was Bob Culbertson. Or, you know, I saw a stick player at the fair in San Diego. Yeah, that's Tom Greisgraber. You know, <laughs> like you, you name the country, I probably know the stick player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then my favorite one is... Um, yeah, I had um, a, a woman was talking to me. I, it, was, it wasn't busking. I was doing a private function. And a woman said, we started talking and she said, I saw a guy play one of these. It was about 12 years ago. And it was at a private party here in Vancouver. And she starts describing where it was and who was there. And I'm like, that was me. Didn't the guy <laughs> <look> like me? <laughs> that was actually a party for a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know that guy, <laughs> but I know, I think I, this is one that I've mentioned to Victor. I think you're, maybe you're thinking about this one, but I was busking one day and a couple came by, they were like a middle-aged couple and they, they stood and listened to a few songs. And, uh, because people don't know my music, sometimes I'll say, if there's a group around, I'll say, okay, fast or slow, you know, do you want to rock it out or do you want to hear something kind of mellow? So I asked them, they said, oh, play something slow. So I played, I think I played a tune I wrote for my mom that's kind of sentimental or whatnot, you know. And then I get done and the woman walks up to me and she goes, well, we're getting married. And I said, well, okay, but like, I don't even know your name. And she thought that was, she thought that was so funny that we just kind of bonded and they, they were actually engaged. And then I, I played their wedding and we kept in touch. I played at their one year after their wedding thing. And it's you just really neat. The, I played their wedding. Their wedding was on Granville Island. They had both been married before, so it wasn't like a big church thing. But they rented out one of the, the bridges, is the restaurant on uh, Granville Island right by the water. And they, they, on occasion, do private functions. So they had their wedding on the second floor of a restaurant on Granville Island. And I came down and played, and it was very local. It was really a fun thing, yeah. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> I still don't know her name. <laughs> yeah, that sometimes happens, you know. When you're, after a while, you're just too ashamed to ask, so it'll go on forever. <laughs> I won't ask, and people assume that you know. So. Well, I do have the, uh, a couple of like smart aleck responses because guitar players, for some reason, it's crucially important to guitar players what tuning you use. And, you know, for those of us that don't really play a lot of open strings, it doesn't matter that much, really, you know. Uh, I'm match reciprocal for those that are on the edge of your seat. But, um, you know, a, a guy comes by and he, he says, oh, just real quick, I want to know, how do you tune that thing? And I say, oh, you just twist these little things up here. Uh, one other comment about busking and practicing, uh, just to drive this home a little bit, is I can't practice when I'm busking. And here's the difference. If I'm playing a tune and maybe I, I miss a note or make a mistake or something, in my head, I'm thinking if I was practicing, I would stop and go back and get that right. But I'm performing. Uh, there's no stopping. So you just forge ahead. So when I get to the end of the tune, I realize that's not practicing, that's performing. And if there's a, a rough spot there, I have to go home and work on that at home and, and kind of polish it over. You can't do that, you know, while you're performing. So for me, that's kind of a big difference between busking and practicing. But that does get us to practicing. So I, I think what I've learned in teaching the instrument and getting to know a lot of players is the reality is we're all pretty different. And some people are super disciplined and some people really have trouble with discipline and all the rest of us are somewhere in the middle. So what I would say, I think the biggest thing is you need encouragement. And for everybody that's putting a lot of time in practicing and you're not seeing the results, trust me, all that time you're putting in is worthwhile, even if you don't realize it yet. Because what I've noticed in practicing, and I think most people would be this way, you know, you get a little frustrated. I've been working on this for so long and it's just like it was, you know, weeks ago. And then one day you realize, oh, I can play that now. And it's so clear that the only reason you can play it now is because you were working on it that whole time. And one, one day it's going to come together and now you're over that hump. And, you know, maybe not perfectly in one day, but, but like now you're there. So you have to take those moments to realize when you get frustrated, oh, I'm not getting anywhere, it's all the same stuff. Yeah, you are getting somewhere just not as fast as you would like. And trust me, I am not the quickest study. I mean, anywhere I get with the stick is really about putting a lot of time in, which means the incremental change is really small or non-existent for a while. And then you get these plateaus. So 
So I would say, yeah, keep with it. You know, if there's somebody that you kind of jam with, they probably would keep you going too because it's they'll hear that you're improving. And the other thing is that there's so many different ways to spend your practice time, but it is important to divide your practice time up into whatever works for you. So this might not be the same for you, but some bit of that, and for me, it's always the beginning, has to be some kind of warm-up or exercise-y kind of thing. And then you need to push yourself into something you're not doing. That could be a music theory thing, or it could be uh, learning a new song or something that, that's actual effort. And then, you know, there's a bit where if you've got a set, you have to keep that polished. So if there's a number of tunes that you perform regularly, you still got to run through those at home. So try to pick your three or four or five categories that are really crucial to your playing, what you really need to push forward, but try to include something mechanical, something exercise-like, something music theory-like that may not even require an instrument. Maybe you can you know, browse through something in a music theory book and understand what they're talking about without the distraction of having your instrument on and trying to play it at the same time. And then definitely tunes that you're working on and tunes that you've completed, but you still need to keep in the polishing rotation. So I think that's different for everybody. I've talked to a number of students about how do you practice. And I just, I'm not into this rigid, here's your practice regimen. Just as long as you're hitting the main topics and you kind of reflect on yourself, okay, I'd, I'm a little weak there, so I should focus on that a little more for a while or something. But don't just play tune. Yeah, I've got a question about something you said about a minute ago. You mentioned, you know, uh, if you've got a set, you want to keep up on those. Obviously, this is going to be different for different people. But for Jim Meyer, how often do you have to play a particular song to keep it close to performance ready? <laughs> okay, I, I think I have to answer that with the 10,000 hours thing. Because uh, for those that don't know, for me, I first heard this about airline pilots. But to become proficient, maybe more than proficient at something, it's time. And if you ever do anything for 10,000 hours, which I've done the math before, but I think that's three hours a day for 10 years kind of thing, um, you then have a comfortableness with it that changes everything. So for me, uh, ignition... <laughs> I can go a while without playing that. And then, and this is a real trick for people that are doing a, like a variety of different things. If I don't play that tune for a while, I, I don't think it's the right thing to like go out and just play it cold. I would play it like the day before that. But that's a tune that is so ingrained in my brain. I think my left hand can play that song in my sleep. So that changes it. You know, if it's something you've done a million times, to kind of get it back on the list isn't that big a deal. But, you know, for me, uh, for where I busk, one of the rules is you have to have three one-hour sets. So that means I have to have basically three sets ready to go. And um, sometimes I just play through the sets. I have something that's, that just popped into my head when we were thinking about doing this was um, when I was working on Arbutus and Jade, my first CD, with the one that's me and a drummer that came out, oh my God, 10 and a half years ago. Uh, when I had the songs done, but I hadn't recorded them yet, I played the, the album three times a day. <laughs> and I don't even remember how many weeks it was. But uh, uh, leading up to recording with the drummer, I'd get up in the morning, put my headphone amp on, and play through the 11 tunes on that album. And then I'd do that at lunchtime. And then I'd do that in the evening before I'd go to bed. And then the rest of the day was like whatever other stuff I was working on. And that, I would, that was probably the most I was playing in a day because it was pretty much three hours a day just playing that one album. 
So, you know, more than three hours a day is a lot for me. You know, sometimes I would busk five hours a day, but that's also fairly rare. So it was just repetition for me. And, and in doing that is really how I sequenced the album because when you do that a thousand times, you realize, oh, the way this song ends really leads nicely into the way this one begins. So that might change the sequence of the tunes on the CD. So yeah, after playing that album three times a day, for, honestly, I think it was about three months, I felt pretty comfortable playing all those tunes. Though, <laughs> uh, for those that play at home a lot and don't play out that much, when I started busking the, the month after that was recorded, okay, that's a different thing. And it's, you know, I feel comfortable if I close my eyes and play the songs and pretend nobody's around. But there are people around and I can't really close my eyes for an hour. And it, it's really weird to get used to the environment. I mean, any performance environment is a little weird to get used to these kind of informal ones where people literally walk right in front of you or there's a truck behind you or the life flight helicopter is literally right over your head and, and seagulls. I haven't even mentioned the seagulls, but <laughs> they are loud. It's amazing how loud they are when they steal someone's pizza, man, then 20 of them go nuts. So like all these distractions, it's just, it's just like practicing at home. If you do that three hours a day, 200 days a year, guess what? <laughs> you get pretty good at it. And again, I would make no claim about me getting good at it faster than anybody. It took me a while. But it, the repetition of it is I can now, there's, there's a handful of tunes that I can play while having a conversation with somebody who's barely keeping their dog away from biting me, you know? So I've learned to deal with all these distractions. Uh, you mentioned a life flight helicopter a moment ago. So was that when was that when someone asked you a dumb question, you hauled off and you clocked them with your stick? Or uh, if I hear sitar one more time, <laughs> <laughs> someone's going to get carried away on a helicopter. <laughs> they just lower the ladder from the helicopter, and I just send them up. <laughs> oh, you know, that I mean, that's the, the it's busking in an urban setting. That's just the stuff you deal with. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you know, I really appreciate your being here. And and I guess I want to maybe start moving toward wrapping this up. But uh, what's next for Jim Meyer? I'm actually kind of excited. I, things are not moving as quickly as I want, but I'm working on a new CD. And uh, for those that don't know, my first CD was all originals, me and a drummer. And uh, no overdubs. I won't say that there were no edits on the album, but we, there was no overdubs. So it's really just the the two hands on the stick and drums. My second CD was um, originals of mine plus a Ron Bacherman tune and a Tom Greisgraber tune and a Glenn Poorman tune, three of my favorite stick players. Uh, so cover tunes that no one's familiar with on Granville Island, fair enough. Um but again, uh, an album where it doesn't make it on the CD if I can't play it by myself because all, the, all of my tunes are destined to be performed while busking solo. So that's been a requirement all along is if I can't play it, I'm not going to record it and I'm certainly not going to perform it. I'm, I'm giving up on that for this one because I really am a big Tom Greisgraber fan and I listen to a lot of Tom's stuff and the way he arranges things and the way he layers things. And um, in Boston, I've gotten to know a lot of other musicians that play other instruments. I know a, a pretty good sax player now and a, a couple of people that play the cello. And I'm really curious to compose music thinking about either other instruments playing 
or maybe layering multiple stick parts or, you know, I still have the MIDI set up, maybe throwing some keyboard stuff on, which I've never really done. So the next thing for me is going to be a little more orchestration, a little more variety and not just solo Chapman stick. So is, uh, is Mike still going to be your drummer? Uh, Mike has that gig until he doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh, Mike McKelko, for those that don't know, is a, he's a little bit of a local legend here. He's toured with David Foster for Canadian fans, and uh, he plays all styles. When I met him, he was in a Rush tribute band. Uh, since then, he's been in a police tribute band. He plays jazz. He plays everything. So, yeah, uh, Mike is definitely a part of that. Not only the drum kit, but Mike's a good hand percussionist as well. Uh, other instruments, though, I don't, I'm just not sure if I'm going to kind of lean a little on the keyboard or if I'm going to go dig up some human beings. But definitely the next thing is going to be more than solo Chapman stick. Actually, you were mentioning earlier when you said about being a bass player that one of the things you liked about the stick was the, the whole solo experience. Uh, so where does that come into play now if you're bringing in some musicians or not? How do you position yourself in that in that situation i would like to play the occasional gig with other musicians and i do that um uh, some of you know I'm, i'm involved in the vancouver adapted music society group and uh i'll perform with a few of the singer songwriters there in kind of a band setting a couple of times i'm the bass player playing bass on the stick and and a couple of times i i'm sort of the bass player but if we do house of the rising sun then i get to do a pentatonic thing with the other hand you know um and i really enjoy that but the reality is i think this is going to be a recording project and i'm not sure i would be able to launch some kind of live performance you know maybe a one off at a cd release party but but i don't see funding a tour of you know half a dozen musicians necessarily which is a little disappointing but i think just the experience of recording it, that would be good. And if something, oh, Stick Camp. Okay, thanks, Rodrigo. At Stick Camp Canada, from now on, we'll be playing the ensemble version of Jim Meyer tunes <laughs> off the new upcoming. <laughs> all right, bring it on. I'll, I'll mail all the parts to you weeks ahead of time. <laughs> Stick players love parts. All right, so Jim, uh, if people wanted to contact you or buy your music or get a hold of you to inquire about taking lessons or find your music, what's the best way to contact Jim Meyer? Or pay you back something that... Yeah. Oh, uh, for you, Victor, it's PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got to tell a story now. So at the last seminar... We were staying at the Haven, which is a retreat center and or a conference center. And a couple of nights we would go into town, not into town. We would go to town. We would go <laughs> through this funny. place. <laughs> There's a yeah, town. I'm edit that out. <laughs> Where the two buildings are next to each other. <laughs> and on a couple of nights we would go to the surf lodge and and play. You know, there was 15 or 20 of us, and we'd go and play. Well. At the end of the night, we're spending about a half an hour basically just taking down all the sound systems, everyone's instruments and, and stuff. Well, in all the excitement of loading in, I forgot to pay my tab. And, <laughs> and so I left. So I got back to the Haven and about 20 minutes later, 
Jim comes walking through the door and we're all, it's, you know, it's our 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. You know, we'd all sit down and chat after the day was over. And Jim comes walking in and he says, Victor, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? And I said, I'll give me the bad news first. He goes, well, bad news is you didn't pay your tab. So I had to pay it for you. <laughs> oh, well, what could possibly be the good news? Well, the good news, Victor, is that you're an outstanding tipper. <laughs> i have to say that is one of the things about being on gabriel island is um the people there are just lovely the vibe is very relaxed uh they you know we've been the first time we took the stick to gabriel was 2005 so there's a long history of that they're familiar with the Chapman stick over there. And something like that is just not a big deal. You know, the guy comes to me at the end of the night, and, and honestly, Victor, it wasn't even just you. It was a couple of people that were having such a great time, they just got in their car and went home. Um, and it, you know, it's the guys, they're just really nice at the Surf Lodge and the Haven. They're just amazingly good to us. And yeah, it was no big deal. They just, they, you yeah. know, they weren't going to, they weren't going to call the cops because there aren't any on the <laughs> island. <laughs> Plus they know whoever doesn't pay, it's a, an exceptional good tipper. So that's right. Yeah. And they just, you know, set the machine gun down at the ferry waiting for you to try to leave. <laughs> that's it. Oh, okay. So uh, back to the question that brought that all up. Uh, how can people get a hold of you uh, okay. if they want lessons or if they want your music? Uh, and by the way, you want Jim's music. But yeah, how do they find you, Jim? Uh, I would just point everybody to jimmeyer.ca. That's J-I-M-M-E-Y-E-R.ca. And if you want to email me, uh, send me a note at info at jimmeyer.ca. And uh, especially if you're interested in lessons, that's probably the good way to go. And if you get if when you go to my website, you'll see that it's all about Stick Camp Canada. Oh, I do have a couple of things I need to say toward the end here. But, um, but uh, and, and when you get to the website, you can see on the performance page, you can see videos of people who have come to Stick Camp playing. And on the video page, you can see me. So you might want to do that first. I don't know. <laughs> I would say, actually, you should go to the Stick Camp performance page because to me, that's the real highlight is seeing everybody else play. When we, at This uh, last summer, when we did the big show in the Phoenix Theater on the island, there was, well, there was nine of us that played nine or 10, I think that was a great night of music, man. The variety was there. Everybody played really well. It was like a really nice setting. And yeah, that's, I think that's the fun way to go for sure. Yeah. Those seminars are a great way to be able to get out and play if you don't do it very often. If you're like me and you've got nerve problems and so, well, it's a chance to play in front of a, an audience that's pretty chill and isn't a huge audience sometimes. And, uh, and, surrounded by supportive stick players that are going to applaud for you no matter how many beers Jim needs to buy you. <laughs> Vic, you actually played the, the Bach um, invention there, right? At the last, uh, last I year? didn't perform it. I, I think I played it for the stick players uh, at the Haven uh, uh, once or twice. I didn't. I think you I played it as theater. Really that helped didn't? Or you did it uh, during no, soundcheck? You played it at soundcheck. Yeah, I, I remember I you playing it. Yeah. soundcheck, yeah. 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 Now, the last thing I wanted to say about the seminar is um, for anybody that hasn't performed or is nervous about performing, uh, you know, it would be awesome to have you come to Vancouver. But this is true of any stick seminar, if there's one in your neighborhood. The safest environment to perform in that you will ever come across, the most supportive audience possible 
is a room full of stick players. The first time I ever played in front of people was at a stick seminar in Michigan. And I've seen in, in Vancouver uh, just a few years ago a, a fresh-faced young lady that was fairly new to the stick per, did a solo or first perform. Oh, there she is. It's Claire Seeger. Um, I've seen a lot of people. Play. I know that person. Yeah. Uh, Alan's first stick performance, Victor's first stick performance. I mean, I saw Rodrigo's first at the Mallorca seminar. And those are really cool. And I, I just really want to emphasize that is the friendliest audience you could possibly want to play in front of. And I remember the, maybe the second or third time I played was at a stick seminar in Germany. Uh, that Jim Lampy was in charge of. Jim's a great guy. And uh, I was super nervous uh, showing somebody my instrument at the end of the seminar. I had adjusted my stick strap because he was a little bit bigger guy than me. And I forgot about it. And we packed it up and, and went to the gig. And I was so nervous. Like I, It was one of these open mics where you have to like race to the stage to be able to play. And it was getting kind of late. And I'm like, man, I don't want to go last. And I finally, I grabbed my stuff and I headed up and a keyboard player was just ahead of me. So I had to go back and sit down. And, and I went up and played. And I, I was really, it was pretty rough. And I played one of my uh, child play, which made it onto watercolor. I was playing like an early version of that. And when I got to the chorus, my left hand went to the wrong string. And I think hearing it wrong probably threw me off more than anything. And it would talk about a train wreck. Rodrigo, that was a train wreck. Because when I got to the second chorus, the exact thing happened. The same thing happened. And I realized the next morning it was because I had adjusted the strap and I had practiced in like one position, don't move anything. Uh, that's not as big a deal now. But, but back then it was enough to throw me off. And I was mortified. And I'm walking back to the table and Jim Lampy and all the stick players are just applauding and they're going, no, that was awesome, you know? And everybody had, nobody was BSing. Everybody had one good thing to say about what I did, which just made me feel so much better. And then it was like a half hour later, I was sitting next to Jim and I said, okay, Mr. Lampy, give me the scoop. And he, you know, he just kind of said, well, I think there was really only two or three deer in the headlights moments. And other than that, it was okay. You know, and it was like, at the end of it, I felt really good. I knew that it was like super rough and I still felt good about it because I, I just thought, well, that's a step along the way. You know, the next time, hopefully it'll be a little bit better. And the next time after that, it'll be a little bit better. And, and the support of those stick players, I, I'll just never forget that, man. They were just super nice and go out there and do it again. You know, it was great. And I find that universal among stick players. Yeah, I would, just wanted to add this. It's like being home. You feel safe among exactly. stick players. And so th those first opportunities to play, and not only the first ones, it's the perfect environment because you really feel safe. It's, it's home. It's just the home of the Chapman stick players. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap this up. Jim, thank you so much for joining us and for having a conversation with us. And you've made a, you've made a big impact on, uh, I know, Rodrigo and me and Claire. And I know there are a whole lot of other people that have really just been blessed by what you bring to the stick community and by your easygoing manner and your sense of humor and all that work you put in every year to put on the Vancouver seminar. So uh, thanks for everything you do and thanks for coming on Tap In Time. Thanks for having me guys. That was really great. Great to see y'all. Yeah, thank you. All right.
Before signing off, I'd like to identify Jim's music that we heard during the show. The first song we heard part of is called Kemuchia, and the second snippet we heard was from Ignition. Both of these songs are from his CD entitled Arbutus and Jade. And right now, as we close things out, we're hearing Postcard from Carlsbad, which comes off of his second CD called Watercolor. As we've mentioned before, we'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to send us any of your thoughts about this or any other Tap in Time installment. Thanks again for coming along with us, and we hope that sometime soon you get the opportunity to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Goodbye. We welcome your comments. You can contact us by email at tapintimepodcast at gmail.com.